You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, good morning, church, and welcome back to our online services. I hope that uh, you are doing well. I don't know how many weeks we are into this quarantine, but I just really am trusting and believing that God is moving in your life in this season. And today, I just want to take some time to encourage you in the scriptures. Um, We took a break last week as we just talked mainly about the resurrection. What a wonderful time to celebrate Easter. Uh, Today, we're going to get back into our The Psalms and the Soul series that we've been going through. And we decided to dig into the book of Psalms because it provides for us so much depth to how the people of God um, interacted with God in their best moments and even in some of their most difficult moments. And before we get into that scripture here today, I do want to say a special thank you to Mike and Leah for doing that wonderful opening for Raynar reading the scripture. It's so wonderful to see people's faces, um, even though we can't see everybody face to face right now in person, at least we have a little bit of interaction. And I do want to tell you, if you haven't yet, Every service now, before we go live online, we're doing a Zoom lobby. And so Heather is hosting a Zoom lobby. It's going out on our email, the link that you can click in our social media, the link that you can click to be a part of that Zoom lobby. It's just really gathering, again, seeing each other uh, through the computer screen, maybe drinking a cup of coffee, sharing some stories and really just trying to connect in different ways. So be sure to check out that Zoom call, um, Zoom lobby call every Sunday at 9.30 before the live stream. Amen. So we want to get into the scripture today. Uh, Raynar read our our key scripture. We're in Psalm chapter 16. And I was uh, thinking about this. I've told this story before, but let me share it with you again. Years ago, a friend of mine asked me to go with him to pick up his car um, from the shop and uh, or to drop his car off at the shop. I can't remember which it was. But anyways, I had the opportunity to drive for the first time ever this Lexus. And um, I'd never driven a Lexus before. At that time, I thought that they were the like really high end, like perhaps even like a Mercedes or something like that. Um, and, you know, they're, they're just a glorified Toyota, really. But um, I was super excited to drive this Lexus. And as I got into the car and we began to drive off to the uh, to the shop, I noticed that the car did not respond very well um, to accelerating and, and it just seemed very sluggish. I would try to really punch it and see, man, what can this car do? And it just really never seemed to get going like I had anticipated that it would. And so um, I drew this sort of conclusion in my mind after I drove probably, I don't know, 10 or, or 15 miles down the road to the body shop or to the auto shop that this Lexus really isn't what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, it's just not that nice of a car. It doesn't really accelerate. It doesn't really take off well. It just seems sort of like not a very good car. What I didn't realize was all along I was driving with the emergency brake on. Like literally I had the emergency brake to the floor. I'm driving and the whole time the emergency brake was working against me as I'm driving 10 to 15 miles down the road in this car. And all the while I'm thinking, man, this car is garbage. And really it was an operator error. 
And what was interesting about that story is that the whole time the dashboard was indicating, there was a dashboard light on that was telling me that the emergency brake was on, but I wasn't paying attention to the dashboard light. I didn't look at the dashboard light. And so therefore I didn't recognize that there was a deeper issue. There was something else going on with the car than just, man, this car isn't a very good car. I didn't see the dashboard light. I could feel something was right, not right, but and I knew there was an issue, but I didn't quite know what it was until literally I pulled in to the parking lot uh, where we were taking the car and recognized, oh my gosh, the emergency brake has been on the entire time. Now, last week we set aside some time to celebrate the resurrection, and that was wonderful. And... Um, it's probably the first digital Easter in the history of the world where everybody had to do Easter in a digital way. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about, man, it was great. People probably felt excited about doing this digital Easter, doing it differently, all these kind of things. But the reality is we're quite a few weeks now into this quarantine, into this shelter in place um, that's going on. And, and I'm just getting the sense that the novelty of it all is beginning to wear off. I'm getting a sense that it's beginning to grow you know, old and that patience is beginning to grow thin, uh, that walls feel like they're closing in, and that life in many ways feels limited at best and altogether paralyzed for some at the worst. Um, I don't know if you can attest to that. I know maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I can fully attest to this concept. And so in this time, I've been thinking a lot about um, my own soul, my response to, to this virus and the restrictions due to its potential danger have been mixed. Probably for you, they've been mixed. At times, I feel frustrated by it. At times, I'm, I'm just angry about like how people are responding or, or that people are losing their lives or, or just the situation at hand. I, I, it, it bothers me. At times, I feel anxious about the uncertainty of it all. And when is this going to end? And, and what will normal look like when we go back to quote unquote normal, which I don't think we will ever go back to normal as we knew it. All of these emotions though, as I think about it, are like dashboard lights to our soul. They reveal deeper concerns of trust and hope. Just like the dashboard on that Lexus was trying to tell me, hey, there's a problem here. Something is going on here. You need to fix this, release the emergency brake, and I didn't pay attention to it. Oftentimes, the emotions that we're feeling, especially in times of distress, in times of struggle, those emotions are telling us that there's something deeper going on, like a dashboard light saying, hey, there's a bigger problem here that you need to address. They reveal these deeper concerns, at least for me, of trust and hope. And they tend to beg of me to tend to my own soul. Um, these dashboard lights, these emotions beg the question, how is your soul? And that's what we want to talk about out of Psalm 16 today. How is your soul? Think about that for a moment. Don't just glaze over the question or get up and go grab another cup of coffee. Think about it with me for a moment. How, ask yourself. How is my soul? How am I dealing with, coping with what is happening around me in the depths of my being? When I assess my own soul, 
I'm reminded of the purpose for my ex- existence, for my existence, or my chief end, if you will. And and I'm reminded, you know, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I don't know what the longer catechism looks like, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism opened up with this one um, question. The first thing they said is, what is the chief end of man? And they answered that question by saying this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So when I begin to assess my own soul, I begin to ask the question, well, what, what does the baseline of a healthy soul look like. And the baseline of a healthy soul looks like someone who is fully invested in glorifying God and enjoying him forever. The health of my soul, the health of your soul, I would propose to you, is rooted in the practice of this premise. How we view this whole idea of our chief end or our purpose and how we practice this idea of glorifying God and enjoying him forever will really be the thing that that drives the health of our souls. So let's talk about that a little bit today. John Piper would call this idea Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. He would say it like this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let me say that again, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He goes on to sort of define this idea by saying this, not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, he says, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. And I think what this season is teaching us is that oftentimes we place our joy or the source of our joy, the source of our hope in other things beyond God. And so that can cause great sickness in our souls, especially when those things are removed, when those things are taken away from us and we are left all of a sudden with moments of silence and solitude and we have to reconcile with what's going on inside of us. And so John Piper would say that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And oftentimes we find ourselves lacking in being satisfied in God and in God alone. So I think that Psalm 16, we're going to break this open this morning, uh, is a beautiful summary of what it looks like, especially in difficult times, to make God's glory our top priority. Not just to make his glory our priority, but also to be satisfied in doing so. To find great uh, satisfaction and contentment in glorifying God and making God's glory our number one priority. To delight, if you will, in glorifying God, even in the difficult times. Now, as we jump into Psalm 16, I'm not going to start in verse 1. We're going to kind of talk about the entire psalm. There's 11 verses, but I'm not going to start in verse 1. I want to start in verses 8 and 9 because I believe that verses 8 and 9, that everything of the whole psalm sort of hinges on 8 and 9, that they're the key verses of the entire scripture. And they say this, I have set the Lord always before me. This is David making this declaration, this poem or song, uh, more than likely a song that he 
is singing. And he says in verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He goes on in verse nine to say, therefore, which is an important word, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Or verse nine would go this way in the NLT, in the New Living Translation, heart, body, and soul are filled with joy. Or the contemporary English version says it like this, with all my heart, I will celebrate and I can safely rest. Now, I think that these two verses, eight and nine, are the, the key verses of the entire psalm, and they're critical to understanding what's going on. Here, David declares his dedication to the presence of the Lord and how that impacts his daily life. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. This is his, his declaration of his dedication to God's very presence. And the first thing that I would say as we look at the psalm, and in, in particular these, these key verses, is we must learn how to practice God's presence or practice the presence of God. This isn't anything new. We've talked about this before, to practice the presence of God. I think what David summarizes right here in verse 8 is this idea of quorum Deo, this Latin term. Again, we've talked about this before. This simply means to live in the face of God or to live in the presence of God. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. What he's saying is, I am living in the face of God. I am living in the presence of God. Coram Deo, I think the best definition for it is sort of threefold. That I live in the presence of God, that I live under God's authority, and that I live to the glory of God. This is what David is saying when he says, I have set the Lord always before me. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, he's at, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And then he makes this, this strong, uses this strong word. He says, therefore, taking this into consideration that I have the Lord before me, I've set the Lord before me always, and that, and that he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, taking this into consideration, therefore, he says, my life is unshakable. My life is peace-filled. My life is joyful. My life is secure. He says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. My soul rests secure in other versions. What David is saying is that, that these things, that, that because he lives quorum Deo in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God, that this provides for him this whole life this, this, this holistic view of a life that is secure in God, that is unshakable in God, that is filled with joy because of God, that is filled with peace because of God. This, my friends, is a soul that is at rest in the presence of God. That's why I think that 8 and 9 are so critical to the rest of the text in, in Psalm 16. I would consider them almost like the chorus, the anthem, if you will, of the song. We have verses and we have choruses, and generally choruses are the, are the big idea. They're the things that, that sort of repeat over and over again. And here David is saying this idea of, I have set the Lord before me always. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And my heart and my soul and my entire body is at peace is at rest and is unshakable in the presence of the living God. 
these things that David is referring to are available to him because, to borrow from Brother Lawrence, he practiced the presence of God. Not only did he practice the presence of God, the scriptures make it clear that he was good at it. He talks about how he remembers the Lord. He's seen him in his, in his sanctuary. He's beheld his power and glory, that his loving kindness is better than life, that he has loved the place where God's glory dwells, that the one thing that he desires and that he will seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of life. David had this heart after the presence of God, and the Psalms are filled with poems and Psalms of him declaring this very thing. He was very good at practicing the presence of of God. And I want to encourage you as you read Psalm 16, and in particular, these key verses, these key verses are all about God's presence and how do we practice setting the Lord before us constantly, daily, always before us. It's like what R. Allen Wood said. He said this, it takes practice to become proficient at something. Practicing the presence of God will make us good at it. I would encourage you to read a book if you if you can maybe get it on Amazon Prime or something or have it delivered to your house. It's Practicing His Presence by Brother Lawrence. It's a fantastic book that sort of walks through ways in which we can practice the presence of God. Now, with that in mind, those being the key verses, let's look at the rest of the text here and, and see what happens as David practices the presence of God, as David has placed God as his most important focal point, the, the quorum, deum, I, quorum deo, I'm living in his presence under his authority and to his glory, he now is able to make some declarations about who Yahweh is. In verses one through four, David makes this broad sweeping declaration that Yahweh is my protection. He opens up the psalm in this sort of lament, this cry for help. He's, he's shouting out in Psalm 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is a, a lament. This is a cry for help. But what he's saying really is that, listen, I can look to God, look to Yahweh as my protection because his presence is where I dwell. You could read this as him declaring, preserve me, O Lord, save me, O Lord, keep me safe, protect me, watch over me. These are all the ideas that verse one is beginning to declare. He's seeking God, he's seeking Yahweh for the very protection of his own soul. In, a, in effect, he's saying, listen, Lord, in you I put my trust. I run to you for safety. It's only in you that I will take refuge or where I can actually find true refuge. And here he is declaring that God alone is worthy of his trust because God alone is the only one able to actually help him, to actually protect him, to actually preserve him or keep him safe. David contrasts in verse one through four here, David contrasts what it looks like to find refuge in God versus chasing after all these other gods. He makes this declaration that in Yahweh, he finds refuge and he finds good. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. So he's saying in, in Yahweh, I find my refuge and in Yahweh, I find goodness. 
But he contrasts that. Those that are chasing after other gods, he says all that they find is um, sorrows multiplied. It's not that David is wishing uh, multiplied sorrows upon those who are chasing after gods, other gods. No, what he's saying is that those people who are chasing after all of these false gods in hope that they can provide for them some sort of uh, safety, some sort of refuge, they find nothing. It's like multiplied sorrows, meaning imagine if tragedy was befalling you and you called out to your God and he could not answer. And so therefore you had no hope beyond the present tragedy that was in your life. And it would feel like that tragedy was multiplied upon sorrow, upon sorrow, upon sorrow. Not only am I dealing with the tragedy that's at hand, but also the greater tragedy that the God that I had worshipped, the false God that I worshipped, has no power to deliver me, has no power to save me, has no power to be my refuge. And this is what David is contrasting, that in God and in God alone, the one true living God, Yahweh himself, I find my protection, I find my refuge, I find the goodness of his kingdom working on my behalf. All of the scriptures and the Psalms in particular are filled with this sort of language that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, that God is our strong tower, that God is our rock of salvation, that uh, I look to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who does not sleep, who does not slumber. Um, these kind of things, the, the entire Psalms are filled with this sort of terminology of David and others making declarations that God, Yahweh, is their protection, their refuge, their strong tower. So this week, I want to I encourage you to search through the scriptures, uh, search through the Psalms maybe, and look for these sort of scriptures about the protection of the Lord. And, and find one really good one that you like and commit that scripture to memory. One of my favorite ones that, that I am pretty much memorized, but I'm going to read it for you so I don't screw it up, is Psalm 27. One. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Find a scripture like that this week and memorize it. What else do we learn about this idea of David living in the presence of God, that he can make the declaration that Yahweh is my protection? He goes on to say, Yahweh is also my portion. And I love this. Verses five through seven begins to summarize this idea. David goes on to describe Yahweh as his portion, a portion in which he delights and takes great pleasure in. What does he say? He says things like, Yahweh is my chosen portion. Yahweh is my cup. Uh, in, in Psalm 23, 5, it declares that cup as a cup that runs over, that is abundantly filled. He goes on to say that Yahweh is my beautiful inheritance, that Yahweh is my counselor. In other words, in other words David is declaring Yahweh is the choicest of choices. Catch that. When he's making these declarations, he's saying Yahweh is the choicest of choices. If unending options were upon the table in front of him, 
And let me remind you, David was a king, a very, very successful king. And so he has lots of options in front of him. But he's essentially saying that if unending options were laid out for me, in front of me upon the table, that he would still choose Yahweh. <coughs> Pardon me. Why? <clears throat> Why would David still choose Yahweh if he had any other option available to him? Because David believes, as he's declaring, <clears throat> that Yahweh is his greatest good. That Yahweh is the treasure of all treasures. That Yahweh is like the finest of wines, the nourishment of his soul, the counselor of his heart. Think about that for a moment. How, how have I made Yahweh my portion? Do I think these things, if, if all kinds of options were laid out for me upon the table, would I still emphatically reach for Yahweh as my portion? and Yahweh alone as my portion, declaring him the greatest good for my life, declaring him to be the treasure of all treasures, the finest of wines, the choicest cut of sirloin, whatever. You can use any sort of metaphor you would like, but what he's essentially saying is that this is the nourishment of my soul. It is found in Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Riches, honor, friends, fame, nothing is as valuable to David as Yahweh. Yahweh is his portion. David needs not look anywhere else to find the fulfillment for his soul, but yet he is content, he is secure in Yahweh no matter what may come his way. Makes me think about uh, Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen said this, if you know you are beloved of God, and we're talking about contentment in God, like finding this way that being secure in Yahweh no matter what happens. Henry Nouwen says, if you know you are beloved of God, you can live with an enormous amount of success an enormous, and an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity. Because your identity is that you are beloved. This is how David can make the declaration that Yahweh is my portion because David understood that he was the beloved of God. His identity was wrapped up in the fact that he was the beloved of God. And therefore, he made these declarations that as I live in your presence, you alone are my protector. You alone are my portion, O God. I hope this is encouraging you. My heart as we read through these Psalms is that we too can be encouraged. We see that David must be facing some sort of a difficult time because he opens up saying, Lord, help me. He opens up saying, preserve me, O God. So some difficult things have happened in David's life and we see that in the scriptures. It's recorded clearly. And here David is making this declaration, you are my protection, you are my portion. This week, I also want to encourage you, find something, one thing every single day that you are thankful for, and then verbally thank the Lord for his provision. Verbally thank the Lord that he has provided for you and that you recognize that he has done that and because he has been so good to you that he is your portion. 
Take some time, write it down, journal it out, uh, make a Facebook post that has a has a declaration. I am so thankful today for the Lord because he is my portion. He has provided me a beautiful family. He has provided me these, whatever that might be, find something every single day, even just one thing <clears throat> that you're thankful for and give God glory for it. Lastly, this is the int very interesting part, lastly. He goes on in verses 10 and 11 to make this declaration that Yahweh is my promise. <clears throat> These last two verses are interesting because certainly David is regarding his own mortality in light of his devotion to the Lord. But what else is happening here? So in these last two verses, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. So David is, is wrestling with, he's, he's regarding his own mortality. He's talking about his own death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That means the grave. He's talking about death here. Or let your Holy One see corruption. <clears throat> but there's more happening in these verses than just David's own wrestling with his, with his personal mortality. What else is happening? Well, these verses in particular are what make this psalm not just a psalm of lament, but they make this psalm a prophetic and a messianic psalm. What do I mean by that? They are speaking, these verses are speaking in particular about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if I didn't say it already, let me say it again. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection. We're only one week into a seven-week celebration known as Easter Tide of the Resurrection of Jesus. For the, for the seven weeks or 40-some or, or days where Jesus showed himself uh, alive and well to his disciples, to over 500 people making declarations about the kingdom of God, Easter Tide is when we celebrate that time. It leads all the way up to the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, uh, the day of Pentecost. And so we have a few more weeks celebrating the resurrection resurrection of Jesus. And this psalm is making a declaration about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Though David probably didn't know it, he was prophetically speaking to a future where the one who would take over his throne for all of eternity would not see corruption, would not be abandoned to death, but would raise again or rise again on the third day. It's interesting, these verses that we just read, it's actually, if you, if you go and read these, from, from verse 8 all the way through verse 11, these are the verses that are used by Peter in Acts chapter 2 and by Paul in Acts chapter 13 to declare the resurrection of Jesus to the particular audiences that they were talking to. So Peter in particular, as they break out into the street on the day of Pentecost and, and people think that they're drunk and he begins to declare, we're not drunk as you suppose, but we've been filled with the Spirit. And he begins to preach this sermon to all of these Jews and, and other Gentiles who have gathered around thousands and thousands of people, he uses this text to declare the resurrection of Jesus. 
He even says, David, we know has passed on. We have his grave. I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, we have his grave with us. It's not about David. It's about Jesus. That Jesus did not, was not abandoned in the grave. That Jesus did not see corruption. He did not, he did not decay in the grave. No, Jesus rose again. Jesus is alive. Amen. Why does this matter? Why does it matter this psalm is declaring to the future resurrection of Jesus Christ? It matters because of this. In Jesus' resurrection, what we are celebrating right now, we see God as the promise keeper. We can see through the text that God declared that he would raise Jesus from the dead and he kept that promise. This is one of the great things that we get from the resurrection that God will do what he said he will do. He is a keeper of his covenant. He is a keeper of his promises. And we too now can trust in God because we see that God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, did not abandon Jesus to decay, yet he raised him from the dead. And so therefore, we can trust that God will not abandon us but that God will lead us in life, that he will offer to us the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore if we will make his glory our number one priority. If we will be people of his presence. This is our chief end, to trust him, to to dwell in his presence, to see him the way that David saw him in Psalm 16. See, Jesus shows us that God the Father is going to keep his promises, that he will not abandon us, that he will lead us in life, that he will offer us fullness of joy, that he will offer us pleasures forevermore, that that those things are found in his presence. And that is our chief and to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or again, as John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as we continue to celebrate the resurrection for the next few weeks during this Easter tide, I want to encourage you, get into your scripture Look through, the, look through the text and find all of these promises that God has given, this covenant God that we worship, that we serve. Look for ways to be a person of the presence of God. Practice his presence. Begin to develop in your soul this longing for the presence of God. As I opened up and asked the question, how is your soul? The only way to cure a sick soul is to find it in the presence of God or position it or posture it in the presence of God. And in that presence is where we find fullness of joy and life forevermore. Amen. I hope that encourages you today. Let me pray for you. God, we are so grateful. Oh, your presence is so beautiful. Your presence is so meaningful to us. 
thank you that you are not a distant God, but that you are here with us in the midst of our coming and our going, our rising up and our lying down. Lord, help us to be people of your presence. Help us to understand our chief end and to practice the premise of glorifying you and enjoying you forever, being satisfied in your presence. You are good. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.